Hello, welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey, Jonathan, how's it going? It is going well. It is a, a kind of a slow week here at Lifeway and in Nashville. You know, we've uh, got Easter this week and Good Friday, so everything's kind of closed down uh, at the end of the week. So getting ready for Easter at the church, that will not be slow, but uh, I know you guys at uh, Southeastern kind of had a rough week this week. Yeah, we did. Um, lost uh, the the wife of one of our college students in um, an accident, and that, that was just, just a tough, tough situation. I know we're not the only um, institution that's gone, gone through that. Uh, but, but just kind of, kind of hard. Um, but anyway, we're just praying for the family and, uh, do, do what we can to, to help out, but it's been a tough week. For sure it has. And, uh, our prayers go out to that family there at Southeastern, uh, a couple of big news items this week. And then we, we talked about it last week on the podcast that we're going to have a, an extended interview with Barry McCarty. Uh, the parliamentarian for the Southern Baptist Convention and professor of preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So Barry's going to be with us uh, later. We've got about a 35-minute interview with Barry telling the, the history of, of Barry McCarty and the SBC. And, you know, nobody has probably been eyewitness to the the spectrum, you know, that, that he has, has seen. He's had sort of an eye on the dealings of our, our meetings for all years. these years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's just seen it all. So great perspective. Yeah, it is. Uh, so fantastic interview. So be sure to, to catch that here on the backside of the news. And uh, to start us off, we have a third presidential nominee. Yes, we do. That is uh, that that news broke. We're, we're recording this on Thursday night. So that news broke this afternoon that David Crosby um, from First Baptist New Orleans uh, will be nominated by Fred Luter, pastor of Franklin Avenue Baptist Church. A couple of heavy hitters Orleans. from the Crescent City there. Yes, and um, I, many people will probably remember that David Crosby was actually the one to nominate Fred Luter um, when uh, when the the meeting was in New Orleans and Fred Luter was nominated. Very historic moment, um, and David Crosby was the one who nominated him. Um, so there's a, a real a real kinship, a real support uh, between the two of them, um, and so you you see that you see that in this. Uh, but you know he's pastored uh, First Baptist New Orleans for 20 years, and and you can see the whole thing in the um, in the Baptist Press article. But it talks about you know CP giving uh, that their CP giving has been between seven and 15 percent of undesignated receipts, and that also continued even in the middle of major damages from Katrina, uh, relocation, things like that. Um, they gave 10.4 percent to the CP during the fiscal year that started right after Katrina. So, um, so they, they've been very, very faithful. Yeah, strong commitment to the corporate program there. Yes. Yes. Very faithful. This adds a new dynamic to the discussion. Also, one of the things that we've talked about a lot in, in recent days is just diversity. Uh, the story's clear in that as well. 20 to 25% of worship attendees at First Baptist uh, come from non-Anglo ethnic groups. Uh, he said, and then w one of the other stories that I remember coming out uh, as well is that Franklin Avenue used the facilities. So Fred Luter's church used the facilities of David Crosby's church for two and a half years after Katrina because um, 
uh, Franklin Avenue, you know, kind of lost everything in that. And so there's a, a, a real kinship between those two pastors that's kind of a beautiful relationship uh, to see. I told you earlier today, and not that David Crosby would even remember this, but I kind of knew of him when the Luter nomination came. And then the year that we were in Baltimore, it was the break and I needed coffee. And you know that at break time, you go to the Starbucks. Yeah, that Starbucks in the lobby of the Baltimore Convention Center was absolutely slam-packed every time there was a break. Yes, every single time there was a break. And I needed coffee one day, and I ended up in line for a half hour, and I was in line right next to David Crosby. And so when you're standing there for a half hour, you You get to know one another. Yes, you do. And, um... And I just remember meeting him, um, and he was a really, just a very humble man, delightful, uh, spoke, just clearly loved being a pastor. Uh, so this was, was very, very interesting news today, and I think, I think it is a good thing for us to have uh, a choice of good pastors, Um to, to think about as our leaders. That's a, that's a blessing, and that's, that's something we should, should remember. Yes, the SBC presidential election has a, a lot greater uh, good choices than the national presidential election, it, it appears, right now. Uh, no comments. <laughs> but, but I do want to point something out that I've, just an observation and then a discovery tonight that I kind of love, and I want to Oh, yeah, this is there. fantastic. This is fantastic. Yes, if we have any more nominations... I, there's a pattern that I feel like needs to follow. So there's been a little chatter about um, Steve Gaines when he entered because there was also historically another Steve Gaines, guitarist, singer, songwriter uh, that uh, was with Leonard Skinnerd. Um, so a lot of folks have made that connection. I'm sure some of you have noticed that David Crosby is also a familiar name, guitarist, singer-songwriter for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Yeah, the church curmudgeon had a great tweet about that earlier tonight. Yes, yes. So I got curious. I thought this would be very interesting. I started looking around on Google. It turns out there is a pop, R&B, hip-hop uh, singer, songwriter, I think has recorded with MC Hammer's label, named J.D. Greer. Now, it's spelled the more traditional way, G-R-E-E-R, but hey, it's close enough. So I just want to throw this out there that if any other names go in the ring, I need there to be a companion musician because that's just too fun. Yes, this is, this is fantastic. I, I, I yes. had no idea uh, that you'd be able to find a, a J.D. Greer. I knew the other two, uh, but the fact that you were able to find somebody and the, and the fact that it was an R&B artist with MC Hammer's label, that just icing I, on the I cake know. there. And it, it, it was really kind of funny because I was just, I was in the car, I was riding along, and I just thought, huh, that would be kind of funny, ha, huh. and I put it in Google, and then there it was. So, just want to throw it out there, there are musician counterparts for each candidate in the SBC presidential election this year. All right, one other big piece of news this week was uh, Ronnie Floyd named the Committee on Resolutions to be chaired by Dr. Stephen Rummage from Bell Shoals Baptist Church in Brandon, Florida. And the vice chairman is good friend of the pod, Jason Dusing. He's the provost and associate professor for historical theology up at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Rounding out the committee are Kelvin Cochran. You remember him from uh, the Atlanta, he was the former Atlanta fire chief. Uh, you remember all that went on last year with him over yes. in Georgia. Linda Cooper, who is the national president of the WMU. And Mark Harris, he's the pastor at uh, First Baptist Church, Charlotte, North Carolina. He's been very vocal in the 
the uh, dealings going on in Charlotte with the uh, transgender bathroom ordinance and all that's going on there. Yeah, he he was also a voice um, for uh, the the traditional marriage amendment some years back, and was a candidate uh, for for the United States Senate um, last year. So he he's very involved. Yes, he's quite involved in politics in, in North Carolina. Brad Jerkovich as a senior pastor at First Baptist Church, Bossier City, Louisiana, in the Shreveport area. Uh, also on the committee, Shannon Royce. She is the chief of staff and chief operating officer at the Family Research Council. Uh, Tony Perkins, president of that. Uh, That's right. Friend of mine from way back. Uh, yes, from, and a Southern Baptist. And a Southern Baptist. Uh, and Roland Slade is the uh, pastor of Meridian Southern Baptist Church in El Cajon, California. And Jim Smith, good friend uh, of yours, I know. You know Jim from your days at uh, Southern. Jim is the vice president now of communications for the National Religious Broadcasters up in D.C., formerly of Southern Seminary. He was the executive editor and chief spokesman at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville uh, for the past few years. And then Matt Staver rounds out the committee. Uh, Matt is the founder and chairman of the Liberty Council, an international nonprofit litigation education and policy organization they have offices in florida virginia and washington dc well usually when you look at the uh, committee on resolutions you can kind of see a pattern and you you also look at what's going on around you we know that religious liberty is going to be a huge issue that uh, i would assume we're going to want to make a statement about this year Uh, there are also some other, you know, last year we had a Supreme Court case that we were concerned about. This year we have a Supreme Court case that we're even connected with. Yeah. Arguments were this week. Arguments were uh, this week, yeah, with the Little Sisters yeah. of the Poor case. I know Guidestone was involved in yeah. that as well as uh, Truett McConnell College and a few others. Right. And uh, obviously, you know, last year we were dealing a lot with the marriage issue, but the um, Obergefell ruling actually came after uh, the the SBC annual meeting last year. So, you know, I, there may be some sort of response to that. Uh, so many things going on um, in culture, not even to mention that we're, we have a lot of things coming up because of the presidential election, some interesting conversations. So I think it's very clear that Dr. Floyd looked at that, looked at, at what's going on, the importance of some of the statements that we're going to make externally. Uh, and we really needed to have people with some experience and some expertise in some of these areas. Um, so while we don't know exactly what will come out of that resolutions committee, you can kind of guess. And he he got uh, quite a roster to deal with some of those things. There will be a resolution thanking St. Louis for hosting us. We do know that is coming. We do know that is coming. And I'm going to guess that it will look a lot like the resolution for Columbus. I- I'm sure it will. Probably. Yes. Almost poorly just played. Some, um, just some dates yeah. change. But so, that's an appropriate thing to do. It is. It is. It point. is. It's just, yeah. you know, it's that's the one you can count on every year. Real quick on resolutions, Amy, got to be in 45 days beforehand. There's a format out there. You can find out all the information at the SBC annual meeting website. Uh, and, and that is all linked in the article over at Baptist Press that we have here at SBC this week. So if you're interested in submitting a resolution, we encourage you to do so. Get that in on time, 45 days before, because the Committee on Resolutions meets and goes over those and decides, uh, you know, maybe, you know, shapes a little bit of the language there, cleans it up some. That's right. And they can um, they can accept. They do not have to accept resolutions. They can craft uh, those things, kind of take take what is submitted and make it 
the the right wording, they can also draft some of their own. So uh, they they do a lot of hard work in those days. Uh, so this this is a great contribution from these people. And um, you know, this is probably one of the more difficult committees to serve on because you have a, a very very tight window, right, and, and quite a bit to do as well. You do have quite a bit to do. It's and it's hard work. Um, precision is absolutely necessary. And as we have said many times in our discussions about this, uh, we who are attending often have our attention focused on so many internal matters uh, that half the time we're like, oh, it's the resolutions committee presentation. You kind of float in a few minutes late or whatever. But honestly, uh, to the world outside, that's the most important thing we're doing on those two days is is we're making statements. Um, Now, resolutions are non-binding. Um, and that's, that's the case of any body that comes together, not just Southern Baptist, but, but resolutions from the United Nations or whatever. They're not uh, binding documents, but they're statements about what we believe about certain things. And so saying it in exactly the right uh, way um, is very important. And so these people work tirelessly in just a few short days. Yeah, very, very important work, very difficult work as well. So be in prayer for your Committee on Resolutions. All right, uh, once again, we are proud to have Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary sponsoring this week's show. We are sponsored by Southeastern's new 81-hour MDiv program. It prepares students to take the gospel to their neighbors and the nations. Wherever you are going, Southeastern will help you get there. For more information, you can visit sebts.edu slash mdiv. Amy, we have mentioned it at the top of the show. It is now time for us to talk to the one and only Barry McCarty. Joining us this week is the Chief Parliamentarian for the Southern Baptist Convention Annual Meetings, Barry McCarty. Barry, it is an honor and a privilege to have you on the show, man. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Jonathan, and with your listeners. All right, man. Well, this year is a big year for you. 30 years, your 30th anniversary as the Chief Parliamentarian for the Southern Baptist Convention, serving at the annual meeting every summer, and uh, your first as a Southern Baptist, actually. Uh, actually, yes, it, <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, I've uh, I've often said uh, that Southern Baptists for a long time have uh, they pay for my brains, but they get my heart for free, and so and now th- they have all of me now. <laughs> for free, I'm sure. You know, I'll, I'll talk to Dr. Floyd. We can make that happen now. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's see. Let's take it all the way back to the beginning. April 1986, Dr. Charles Stanley contacts you about maybe becoming the parliamentarian for the Southern Baptist Convention annual meetings. You were in North Carolina teaching. He was obviously the pastor and still is at First Baptist Atlanta. Take us back to April 1986 and how it all began. Sure. Well, I received a call from Dr. Stanley's office and uh, they said that they needed a professional parliamentarian for their annual meeting in Atlanta, and his uh, folks wanted to know would I uh, be willing to fly down there and meet with him and to see if I could be of some assistance. And uh, I answered immediately, yes, I would be happy to talk with him and and help out if I could. I had followed the convention uh, since the election of Dr. Rogers and the beginning of the conservative resurgence in 1979. So already in that past, you know, six years or so, uh, every conservative evangelical uh, believer who was aware 
of the battle for the Bible had followed what Southern Baptists were doing with great interest. And so I, from the outside, I understood and actually had a great interest in what Southern Baptists were doing. So uh, he flew me down to Atlanta, and I met with him in his home. And I remember when when we sat there, we sat uh, in his living room around his coffee table and couch. And so uh, Dr. Stanley had this uh, legal pad with uh, about three or four pages of questions and problems uh, that had uh, flowed from his experience at the convention in Dallas in 1985. You may recall from your Baptist history that that was the one that they had over 40,000 messengers. Quick question on that. If you have 40,000 messengers, how many... Like right now, we go to a convention and we see it set up for about five to eight thousand, and there are maybe mm-hmm. maybe a dozen mics, right? Uh, right. At these mm-hmm. back in back in the day in in the mid eighties, whenever you're having forty thousand, and then you had the one in Atlanta, and then you had the one in the Superdome in ninety. I mean, these were massive conventions. How, how do you yes. How do you staff? How do you like? What kind of logistics difference were those than the ones today? Well, interesting enough, the the system was I came on in 1986, the same year that they, they introduced what's called the, has been known as the mob box. And that, that does not mean a device to handle a mob. It, it stands for microphone ordering box. And uh, that was a technological advance just to, to provide some technical support for logistically handling a meeting where there are thousands of people and at any given point, you've always got dozens and sometimes maybe hundreds of people that would like to be recognized. And so the microphone ordering box was introduced. I seem to recall at the beginning, I I think that there uh, was something like 15 microphones that would be strategically placed around the meeting hall or the Coliseum, wherever we were. And in the beginning, it was a a fairly simple analog device. At each microphone, there would be a metal box that had physical buttons and lights on it. And the choices were, if you wanted to make a motion, you would press a button that said motion beside it. And if you wanted to uh, amend a motion, you had a button for that. If you wanted to make uh, other any other kind of a motion, you could press that button. And then there was a point of order light. Uh, and that was so the those, one that was used basic, quite a bit that first year. In the early days, yes. Uh, and that, uh, that flowed, I think, uh, uh, somewhat because – the convention in Dallas had been so contentious, and at times it had been confusing. Uh, and so there, there were people. But by that time, you have a lot of contention on the floor, and so there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like what's happening, and somebody who uh, uh, thinks, "No, that's not right." And so that button gave people an opportunity, a chance to, in an orderly fashion, to express to the chair their belief that something was wrong. Uh, In almost every case, what was wrong was not a legitimate point of order, but uh, usually it was just somebody did not like what was happening or they didn't agree with what was happening. Uh, And honestly, uh, I've uh, 
really believe that that a lot of the times some of those points of order seemed to be ways of harassing a conservative chair that uh, moderates and liberals on the floor just didn't like. Uh, I, in some cases, it was pretty clear that somebody was just coming to the mic to be hostile. But in some places, uh, people had questions or were confused. Or occasionally, somebody might have a legitimate point of order. Uh, but that—that's what—that's how that was expressed was through that microphone ordering box. On the platform, there was also again a a large metal box that had lights on it and a display on it. And uh, this was the early days, so this was all analog stuff. Uh, but essentially, it would show us every microphone in the house. And each microphone had a row of four buttons. And when someone came to that microphone and would press one of the four buttons, one of those lights in that column would light up. So we have this big box that has rows and columns for the microphones, rows for the motions. And a member of the Committee on Order of Business would be at that microphone ordering box. And they would cue me. From time to time, I would turn around and would ask them, uh, what's the cue? And uh, they might say something like, uh, you have uh, speakers, uh, uh, you have motions on 7, 3, and uh, and 16. Uh, you have uh, someone to speak for on 8 and 12. You have somebody to speak against on 1 and 3 and, and uh, 14. But they would give me the cue of who – and the system would tell you not only where these speakers were, but the system would blindly uh, tell you who is next in line. So we didn't know who was at these microphones. We just knew that the guy down on microphone number three who wanted to make a motion, that he had pushed the button first. And the guy over on microphone seven that wanted to push a, uh, make a motion, he had pushed it secondly and then someone else, but the system electronically would uh, would uh, create a cue that would show you uh, where these people were in the order they'd press the button. So what we did, uh, I knew from the parliamentary situation, I knew what it was in order to do next, and so I would keep all this information on a hardback legal pad in front of me and would simply cue the president to let him know who was next in line for whatever it was that was appropriate to happen then. So we're sitting in 1986, you got this new box and you're helping Dr. Stanley with the, uh, with, you know, trying to get through this contentious business meeting, which would it turned into, um, and, right. and you know, that first year, I, you know, anything major coming out of that? Well, this you see this in 1986. You're still in the uh, not the very beginning, but you're still in the the crucial early years of the conservative resurgence. So essentially, uh, well, first of all, let's just take the Southern Baptist Convention. Let's take it just a uh, if you want to say a normal convention where there is no contention, a convention where, uh, uh, you know, it's not contentious, uh, there's a lot that has to be done in, in that convention. 
but then when you add the added pressure of everything being hotly contested, that's what made those early meetings so interesting. Uh, and that's why it would wear you out in a day, whether you're on the floor or whether you're on the prep platform, no matter what you're doing, it was a good day's work to, to process all, all that business. Uh, the Southern Baptist convention, it's at that annual meeting that that's the core and the heart of Southern Baptist life, because that's the place, that's the interchange, that's the junction between messengers from local Baptist churches who come together to vote on the program statements and sometimes the governing documents of the SBC entities. That's where trustees are elected for all the entities, the mission boards, the seminaries, all the things that Southern Baptists do together for the cooperative program. The leaders of all of those entities that's when they're selected. They're selected by the people from the churches. That's that crucial junction between the churches and the entities of the SBC. That's where you adopt the budget. So you fund uh, all of these cooperative Southern Baptist works by adopting the budget. So the, the program statements, the charter, charters, the leaders, the, uh, uh, the budgets, all of that, that happens at the convention, and that's a lot of important work that has to take place every single year. Even in a quiet year, a calm year, it's still a lot of work that the messengers and the leaders have to do to, to make all that uh, happen. But in those early days, uh, almost everything was contested because there was a battle for the direction of Southern Baptist life. And the way that works is you, the conservative resurgence from, from a practical logistical standpoint, it happened because uh, Southern Baptist leaders recognized that if you elected a conservative president of the Southern Baptist Convention, that president has the duty to appoint a committee on committees. And that committee on committees then uh, nominates to the next year's convention a committee on nominations. That committee on nominations then nominates an entire slate of officers, of trustees for all the Southern Baptist entities. And then those boards of trustees, they're the ones that actually control the institutions. So the, but because you have these staggered terms, uh, all of that had to be done in one direction for about a 10-year period in order to get a controlling majority on all the boards of trustees. So you elect a conservative president. He appoints a conservative committee on committees. They nominate to the convention a conservative committee on nominations. A conservative committee on nominations uh, proposes a conservative slate of trustees. You elect conservative trustees. They uh, have a majority on each of the seminary and entity boards, the mission boards, and they elect conservative presidents and conservative entity presidents. They hire conservative professors and conservative people, and that's how the resurgence took place. So it started in 1979 with Dr. Rogers, 
But see, by 1986, we're still only halfway through that 10-year period that it took for for all of that to begin to take hold. Yeah. And I'm guessing there were challenges to certain trustees or to certain committee on nomination members. Yes. Now, the big difference when, uh, in fact, the most contentious uh, point of the Dallas Convention in 1985 was in, I think, probably in an effort to be gracious. Uh, Dr. Stanley, uh, someone from the other side, uh, moved a substitute slate for the nominees for, I forget whether it was the Committee on Committees or the Committee on Nominations, but somebody had moved uh, an entire alternate minority slate, if you will. And at first, uh, Dr. Stanley did not disallow that at first. But after a little bit uh, on the advice of some attorneys who were there and some other folks who were assisting him as volunteer parliamentarians, uh, he reversed that decision and ruled that they could only uh, amend the report of the Committee on Nominations one person at a time. And the other side didn't want to do that. Uh, That's a long and laborious process. And so actually... At the end of that convention, uh, Dr. Stanley and the convention were sued, or the convention was sued in both state and federal court, uh, contesting his ruling that uh, you could only nominate one person at a time. Uh, when we came to Atlanta, that that was probably the key issue that Dr. Stanley sought my help on. He, I mean, he had dozens of issues, but that was the one at the top of the list. And I was able to do a little bit of research into the uh, governing documents of the SBC, uh, I, I saw that that he had clearly met the second ruling would, was actually correct. Uh, you you really can amend even under Roberts' rules only one person at a time, not an entire slate. Uh, but that's also what gave birth to changes in the bylaws. And so, uh, I believe even in '86, I think at that same convention there was a proposal to the bylaws, a new bylaw 16, which which spelled it out in the convention's own rules. Uh, you can only make nominations once they're made by the committees on nominations. You can only amend those slates one person at a time. Uh, but that they tested us on that uh, in Atlanta, and once we got into the process, I. My memory fails me as to who was challenged uh, on what boards or entities, but that that was one of the reports that uh, you would have a lot of controversy, a lot of debate, people making amendments on those things, uh, because that was what was going to determine the direction of Southern Baptist entities. Yeah, now you have uh, assisted in the running of, you know, this is your... 30th year or 30th anniversary. So you, you've assisted some powerhouses in the Southern Baptist Convention. You mentioned Dr. Stanley. Well, you also had Adrian Rogers, Jerry Vines, Morris Chapman, Ed Young, uh, Jim Henry, Tom Ellis, Paige Patterson, James Merritt, Jack Graham, Bobby Welch, Frank Page. I mean, this is a, a who's who in the Southern Baptist world now, uh, especially with the conservative resurgence. What are some of the areas that, that some of those guys really sought out? I mean, you, you mentioned Dr. Stanley and the, the different areas that he sought out your advice and, and help. Uh, but these other guys, they're not used to running business meetings for the most part. I mean, this is the parliamentary procedure is, is something that's uh, foreign to a lot of these guys. I mean, they know the Bible inside and out, but whenever it comes to Robert's rules, 
I mean, that's that's where you kind of have to help them out because that's not their their cup of tea. Uh, what are some of the issues that that you've helped them out the most with? Well, I, you've you have framed it. Uh, you've framed the most important uh, thing that uh, the parliamentarian does for these presidents, uh, and that is no. I mean, you don't become uh, a a pastor. Uh, of one of the leading churches in the Southern Baptist Convention because of your parliamentary skills. And actually, no one is elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention for his parliamentary skills. Uh, Presidents are elected because of their vision and their values. That's why messengers, they they want the president's leadership. They, um, it probably doesn't cross anybody's mind. Oh, I wonder how good Jerry Vines is in parliamentary procedure. It's just there are more important criteria that people select president on. So the nice thing about hiring a professional parliamentarian is that for each of these leaders, I was able to bring a complete package of technical skills that they could draw on to help them during the annual meeting and to to uh, enable them to uh, to enact their vision. And I've always seen that as that's how I've defined the role is that I have, uh, I have two basic jobs. And one of them is, is to help the president, uh, stay within the boundaries of the convention's rules and to help him help the messengers stay within the boundaries of the convention's rules. But also I've, I've always seen it as a part of my role is, to show the president how to utilize the rules and the organization and the procedures of the convention to help communicate and enact his vision. Uh, Because I've always known that's why people elected the man who's standing in front of me each year, is that I'm there to assist him as he uh, casts vision for the convention and helps the messengers to express their will. So, it's uh, it's really been a nice system uh, because the the president doesn't need to be an expert on parliamentary procedure every day of his ministry or even every day that he's doing something for the convention. Uh, he just needs to have a package of expertise available to him when he stands up to to preside and also when he's preparing for the convention. There, my work with the president really. Uh, in some senses, is year-round, because as soon as one convention's over, uh, I'm already talking with the next president in the early days to get his ideas of what he would like to accomplish and how can I assist him in doing that. And then it gets more and more intense as the convention gets closer and closer. Uh, but that's uh, that's what I've been delighted to do for uh, for 30 years for some of the greatest uh, American church leaders in in uh, the last uh, you know third of, more than a third of a century or almost a third of a century. Yeah, and some of those that we mentioned that you you've worked with, you know, I, I'm sure there were behind the scenes things, and you may not have to, you may not be able to name names, but just give us some some ideas of, of some of the things that we would never have expected to see behind the scenes of the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. You know, from from the very first year. One of the most impressive things, and 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 actually, I, I'll say that having become close friends with all of these presidents, with each one of these presidents, 
has been an incredible blessing. The, these are friendships that enriched my life at, from the very first day that I got to know each one of the presidents. And then during his term of office, we would spend a lot of time together, uh, get to know one another uh, very closely. And those friendships have been just an incredible blessing. I have had the finest postgraduate education in leadership that any church leader could receive uh, because I've spent so much time with some of the greatest leaders in uh, in Baptist life and in the American church. I mean, these guys are just phenomenal leaders and phenomenal people, and I've learned a lot. Uh, my first year, something I didn't expect, I, I, Charles Stanley uh, taught me more about prayer during that first Southern Baptist Convention than anybody had taught me up to that point. I remember the first Tuesday after the morning session, right from the start of the morning session, they threw everything at us, including the kitchen sink. And uh, so when we went out for the lunch break, uh, you know, we uh, we grabbed a, a, a bite to eat and grabbed our breath. I remember that Dr. Stanley had a, a member of his staff, uh, their prayer minister. And uh, as we got to get ready to go before we, it was time to go back out to the platform to start the Tuesday afternoon session, uh, Dr. Stanley said, hey, let's come back in here to this little room. Uh, Chris is going to pray for us and pray with us. And so we went back there, and there was a little ottoman in front of a sofa in this small room that they had made available for the president to relax in. And the three of us knelt down on that ottoman. And uh, I, I forget Chris's last name, but uh, he prayed. And then Dr. Stanley prayed. And then I prayed. And then I think Dr. Stanley prayed again. And Chris prayed again. I prayed again. <laughs> I just, I, I think we probably spent 25 or 30 minutes together in prayer, and it it was just a deeply moving and encouraging uh, experience there. Uh, but I also got to see Dr. Stanley's heart, and I I've always believed that you you never get to know anybody as well as you get to know them by by listening to them pray out loud, and that was a real blessing to get to hear the heart of one of America's greatest pastors and a great Baptist leader. And, and for me as a young man, that was, that was very formative for me. I, I was deeply moved and, and shaped by that experience of praying with Dr. Stanley. Wasn't the last time we prayed together, and, and I, I really appreciate that about him. And then when Tom Elliff was president, oh, boy, Tom, Tom has been such a deep, man of prayer all through his ministry. I learned a whole lot more about prayer uh, during the time that I served with Tom. But each of these guys has been, uh, you know, a, a really substantive, deep spiritual leader. And I, I just gained a lot. They, they've been an incredible blessing to me. All right. Now you've had front row seats to the revision of the Baptist faith and message in 2000 to the, uh, the Disney boycott. Uh, just before that in the late 90s, um, to some of the most contentious meetings back in the 80s, and to the, the Fred Luter election uh, in 2012. All right, so you've had a front row seat to some really historic moments uh, in, in the past quarter of a century and 30 years of service. 
where do these kind of stand and, and things that, you know, I will never forget where I was when? Well, the first year, I, for obvious reasons, uh, you know, really stands out because that that's when I became engaged. And, uh, and th- those early years, Dr. Stanley, I came on his second year, so I had one year with him. And then uh, Adrian Rogers got back into the fray, uh, two years with Dr. Rogers, and then following that, two years with Dr. Vines. And those that five-year period, that's still where the conservative resurgence, that's still very much in contention. And it's not certain. Uh, in those days, uh, it was going in a particular direction. But there were no guarantees that the conservatives would continue to you know, be selected by the convention for their leadership. So at that point in history, no one knew how this was going to turn out. So those early years, the first five or six years, that was very, very intense. Uh, but I remember New Orleans, you know, under Dr. Vines, as, as we're coming into you know, his second year, uh, that, you know, the other side is seeing that this thing is, has been going in one direction for, you know, a good 10, 10 years. And, uh, and it looks like that they're, the conservatives are going to consolidate uh, their majorities on all the entity boards. And the, it was when Dr. Chapman came in, he presided, he was uh, president in 91 and 92. And that's when things started to, you could see that it had really turned. And so all of those early years, every year was just a royal battle uh, with people not, you know, being sure of the outcome. Uh, looking back through history, the uh, in 2000, uh, finally, you get the Baptist faith and message is being revised. And that's the confessional statement for Southern Baptists. So that's uh, the the document, the confession, the ideals, the beliefs that say what it is that we have in common as Southern Baptists. And it's been fascinating to me this year. Uh, one of the one of the most moving moments of my life is when I was elected by the trustees of Southwestern Seminary. As a professor here, one of the things that I did was to sign the book that's been signed by every professor in the history of the seminary, uh, affirming the Southern Baptist confessional statement. Well, when I signed that book uh, here in the year school year 2015 and 16, I'm signing my agreement to teach within the parameters and affirming my belief in the principles of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And for me, it was a very moving moment because I'd stood on the platform in the year 2000 with Dr. Patterson when he presided over the convention that, uh, that adopted the Baptist Faith and Message. And then there I was at convocation uh, on the platform of the chapel at Southwestern Seminary again with Dr. Patterson as my seminary president signing the book, affirming the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So for me, that that was a deeply moving moment, 16 years separated from one another, uh, where I had the opportunity to affirm a doctrinal statement that I had assisted Southern Baptist in uh, revising in the year 2000. 
All right, Barry. So 30 years in, uh, who knows how many to go? Hopefully, you know, another 30, right? Where do you kind of see, you've seen the trajectory of the Southern Baptist Convention over the last 30 years. Where do you kind of see it going forward? And, and do you think that we may have put our contentious days behind us? That's a great question. Uh, certainly, the issues that divided the Southern Baptist Convention when I began uh, serving with the presidents 30 years ago, those issues have long been settled. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that in 1978, as in talking to people who were familiar with Southern Baptist life in those days, uh, I've, I've got it on some pretty good authorities that in 1978, out of all of the hundreds of professors in the Southern Baptist seminaries, that there were probably only 16 or so who could be identified as being strong inerrantist. And only about half of those were willing to say so publicly in, in their writings and in their speaking. Uh, and that's why the, that's probably the principal reason the conservative resurgence was necessary. These days, you couldn't find 16 or 8 people who don't believe in inerrancy in Southern Baptist seminaries. That is an astounding sea change for a denomination. So those issues of the authority and the integrity and trustworthiness and inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word, those, those issues have long been settled. Uh, you know, but there are always among people of faith and people of conviction, there are always going to be things to discuss and things to talk about. There'll always be uh, perspectives on Scripture and faith and doctrine where good people, uh, good Bible-believing people would disagree. Uh, and so th there's always going to be a need to decide where the boundary lines are and uh, you know, where do we draw the lines and say, do you know what, this is outside the confession of our faith, and uh, and within it, we've all got to decide to be charitable and understanding with one another. <laughs> so my hope and prayer is that Southern Baptists will continue uh, along the paths that they've, the, the, the state, they'll honor the stakes that have been driven down doctrinally in the past. And my hope and prayer is that uh, you know, we'd be able to meet the challenges in the 21st century world that the gospel is seeing everywhere. Uh, most of the time, a lot of the news is negative. You, you hear of persecution uh, abroad. The, you, you hear of uh, oppressive Islamic governments and Hindu governments and communist governments that are oppressing Christians. And even here at home, the secular uh, opposition that believers have in the United States, a lot of times you look at on the surface and the news is bad, but actually we are hearing some astoundingly positive reports. Uh, for example, across the Islamic world, in places where the, the, the situation is just horrible, where there's persecution and, and people are murdered for their faith, we're hearing of hundreds and thousands of Muslims coming to faith in Christ. Uh, so, I mean, it's the same way that it was in the first century, that uh, a lot of times if you look at the surface and say, oh my goodness, this is awful, this is terrible, 
what's happening underneath is that God is uh, using the blood of the martyrs as the seed of the church. So uh, I, one of the reasons I became a Southern Baptist is that I, I finally came to the conclusion that nobody in my generation was going to speak more clearly uh, on the things that really mattered than Southern Baptists. And so whether it's uh, the cultural and ethical issues that face our day, Southern Baptists are speaking with a biblical clarity on that. I decided I wanted to be part of that voice officially, not just help Southern Baptists do that. I wanted to be a Southern Baptist doing that. And world missions, uh, you know, even though our mission boards have had a tough time lately and you know, trying to figure out how to fund the mission programs around the world and across the country, the, the fact is the Southern Baptists are still fielding the largest missionary force for biblical Christianity the world's ever seen. So uh, I I could not be happier to be a Southern Baptist, not just to be somebody who's helped Southern Baptist leaders accomplish their vision, but I'm delighted to be a Southern Baptist, and I am really tickled to be preaching, uh, to be teaching, uh, preaching and rhetoric and reasoning in one of the Southern Baptist seminaries. So I'm going to try to give my best effort for the rest of my days to teach the next generation of pastors and leaders and missionaries. And uh, uh, from here on out, I'm going to live and one day die as a happy Southern Baptist. All right. Well, thank you again for uh, your insight and uh, just for your service also uh, on behalf of Southern Baptist. We appreciate what you've done over the last three decades, and we look forward to seeing you in St. Louis. All right. Thank you for that. You know, I am uh, always a fan of the work of the parliamentarian. You're the president and founding member of the Barry McCarty fan club, I think, (laughs) too. I have great appreciation for the work that he does. Uh, I also am a a big fan of his wife, Pat. Uh, Worked with her some in the years that she was at NAM. Uh, but I will say going way back to the first time I streamed uh, the SBC, I thought, okay, the parliamentarian, parliamentarian's a rock star. And uh, so those, uh, so those You're the stories, only person out there that's looking at that going, yeah, the parliamentarian, he's a rock I star. I am not the only person out there that is, is saying that, but there are not very many of us. <laughs> yes. But that's okay. That's okay. Yes. And we, we really appreciate Barry for taking the time, and uh, we appreciate all he's done. And it's always good to see him at the annual meeting. So can't wait to yep. see him in St. Louis. I mean, it's, uh, since it's Easter week, we mentioned that we weren't going to do a, a full-blown show. We had the big interview with Barry there, a couple of news items up front. So our This Week in SBC History was the one and only Barry McCarty. So, That's right. Uh, we got we, a lot he gave of history us all there. the history we needed. Exactly. So, uh, and our resources of the week, uh, once again, is uh, Barry McCarty's book. We'll put that's that in right. the resources of the week on uh, his his book on Robert's Rules. Par- that's right. Parliamentary Guide for Church Leaders, I believe. So. Yeah. So uh, check that out. That is our resource of the week. And that's going to do it for us this week on SBC This Week. We'll be back with another full show next week. We hope to have you join us next week. Happy Easter. See you next week. Happy Easter.